Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Happy Monday. Thanks for hanging out with us. Welcome to the show. Oh, yeah. I mean, this weekend was eventful. Super Bowl. Of course. Uh, Yeah. I actually was so busy working, Ryan, that I didn't even get to watch it. (laughs) Same. I mean, I was working as well, and I watched the halftime show, which we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, in the T-Report coming up soon. So stick around for that, because it was quite interesting. But yeah, it was most definitely a different type of Super Super Bowl Sunday, like, day. Like, I think I ordered Thai food instead of, like, the normal wings and pizza. Oh, I just yeah. didn't care. You know, I was like, whatever. I remember those days before I stopped eating meats. I did really love some chicken wings. Just saying. Shira will most definitely still take a bite of pizza if it's like around that's in her it. vicinity. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. No, I say the cheese, the pizza with the cheese and some eggs. That's the thing I, I do. I give in on. But I remember <laughs> those days. Mm, I like those chicken wings. But then now it seems kind of gross that I ate all those things. Anyway, let's move on to uh, some much training this hour. But before we do, a little bit about our show today. We've got the founder of an organization that deprograms extremists joining us. That conversation, let me tell you, is so interesting. So please, I encourage you to stick around for that. Plus, of course, we're celebrating and reflecting on National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day that happened yesterday and how racial justice is really key to ending that. But now let's get into some headlines, news of the day. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says all parties have agreed on an impeachment trial structure that will allow for the trial to achieve its purpose, truth, and accountability. Each side will have 16 hours over two days to make their case, and that starts tomorrow. The structure we have agreed to is eminently fair. It will allow for the trial to achieve its purpose, truth, and accountability. That's what trials are designed to do to arrive at the truth of the matter and render a verdict. And and following the despicable attack on January the 6th, there must, there must be truth and accountability if we are going to move forward, heal, and bring our country together once again. Speaking of the trial, you know, everyone's talking about it from Republicans to conservatives. Well, Charles J. Cooper, a conservative constitutional attorney, says in an op-ed published in The Wall Street Journal over the weekend that Republicans are wrong to argue that it is unconstitutional to hold an impeachment trial for a former president. 
Now, all but five GOP senators backed former President Trump in a last vote late last month after Senator Rand Paul challenged the constitutional basis for the impeachment trial. He said impeachment is for removal from office and the accused here has already left the office. <laughs> which, yeah, but doesn't mean we shouldn't hold him accountable. And by the way, we have got Natalie Jennings from the Washington Post joining us for that to talk about where everyone is at with the impeachment trial and what we should expect next this hour. And uh, finally, within his first days as president of the U.S., Joe Biden's administration reversed the ban, as we know, on transgender people from openly serving in the U.S. military. And that begins now, according to Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby. He literally said the time is now. He added, if you can meet all the other requirements, physical fitness and your academics and all the other requirements to enlist in a branch of the armed forces, Transgender identity will not be a bar. So today somebody can walk in and join. So he had to say that because it seemed unclear exactly if or when the military would formally end the ban and allow enlistments from transgender service members. But according to Kirby, it's pretty clear that that option has been available since the ban was lifted. And uh, that's what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? All right, y'all, let's talk about that Super Bowl performance. It's time for the T-Report, those pop culture stories trending right now. So, of course, we knew the Super Bowl was going to be way different than normal. I had a lot of red flags immediately because, you know, they had people in the stands. They also had folks who cut out, uh, who paid for cutout pictures of themselves to be mm-hmm. in the stands. Um, you know, Jasmine Sullivan shared the national anthem with er- Eric Church, which was kind of weird. But really, I think the attention was on the halftime show with The Weeknd. And of course, not only did The Weeknd take over Raymond James Stadium Sunday night, but the singer also turned Twitter into a frenzy, becoming literally the new viral meme. So did you see it? Have you seen the performance? I've seen the meme. So the funny thing is I, I didn't watch Super Bowl, but the, where he did the selfie video, right? Is that well, it? Well, he went, uh, so in part of the uh, the the performance, he was singing, I can't get myself and I with you, the yeah. face thing. And he went into this maze and it, like he had a selfie camera. Oh God, and it's just cut out for me. Oh, he had a selfie camera basically. And he was just, it looked like he was drunk and it was giving everybody seasickness. And oh, um, it was just hilarious. I mean, some of the tweets that came from that moment saying me trying to find the bathroom at the club after six or seven, uh, me looking for my $2,000. Uh, some people saying they hated the camera angle. I was one of them. But I had to congratulate some of my friends from college. I actually know some of them who were performing on the field with oh, him. So super cool, cool moment. Uh, let us know your thoughts of the Super Bowl halftime show. Of course, did y'all think he did? good at lgt show you can hit us up and let us know um but super quickly this is also a part of the t report we have your chance to win your way into an exclusive pay-per-view concert special with max and his color vision deluxe experience on saturday february 27th 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific so head over now to we are channel q and enter for your chance to win a pair of passes plus a vip meet and greet with max all the information's on the website, wearechannelq.com. That's your T-Report. Now coming up, the pros and cons ongoing big on the upcoming stimulus aid. We look at that next with... Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. 
President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief plan is getting new scrutiny and not just from the Republicans. Back with us is Emily Stewart, business and politics reporter for Vox. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. So why this new scrutiny, including from Democrats like Larry Summers, who actually served as Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton and as National Economic Council Director under Barack Obama, why is he speaking out, even doing this op-ed in Washington Post? There are a couple of things going on here. You know, I think that generally the sentiment on stimulus from most Democrats, most progressives, and honestly, a lot of people in the middle has been the real risk on the economy has been doing too little. Like, I don't think anybody would say that we've done too much to to respond to the COVID crisis, given just like the state of affairs right now. But Summers is sort of sounding the alarm, basically saying this $1.9 trillion relief plan that Biden has put forth um, might be too much. And he has like a few arguments. Um, In one part, he says that maybe this would cause inflation. Now, I think it's important to remember inflation has been pretty low for quite some time. So it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if we had a tidbit of inflation. But he also seems to think that basically if Democrats do this big push right now, that that will crowd out later pushes on things like infrastructure. So how much are people actually paying attention to him? Because it actually, I mean, he does have the resume and I, you wrote that it's kind of circling into the, in the White House, sir. But is Joe Biden going to listen to him? Biden and his team has kind of said like, thanks, but no thanks. I mean, <laughs> I think there's just something very clear about this in that if Larry Summers did have as many lines into the White House privately, he probably wouldn't need to write an op-ed in the Washington Post. He could just call them. Um, but they've kind of been like, listen, thanks for your input. We don't, this is not our theory of the case. Like, have a good day. Again, we're talking to Emily Stewart from Vox right now. How is Biden's experience trying to pass the recovery bill under Obama informing him here as well, or is it? Yeah, so if you think back to 2009, what happened was Democrats kind of got what they thought were going to be multiple chances to pass a stimulus package, and they got one chance. And so it was probably smaller than it should have been because the recovery from the 2009 Great Recession was a lot slower and a lot longer than it needed to be. And so what Biden's team will tell you and what a lot of Democrats will tell you is they're really keeping that in mind. Like they hope that they're going to get another bite at the apple here. They don't want to take it for granted. Yeah. So what's more important, the economics of this package or the po- the politics of this package? It's hard to say. I mean, it's really both of them. Like, there, we do have to remember that there are some moderate sen- senators who like aren't super on board with going super big on some things like Joe Manchin in West Virginia is a little bit nervous. And so Democrats have to kind of keep him on board because they need every single Democrat to vote for the stimulus package. But I do think it's important just to remember, and Paul Krugman wrote about this over the weekend in the New York Times, like it is sort of like we're fighting a war um, and we need all of our resources to fight the war against the pandemic because ultimately the economy is not going to get better until we really like get things under control. And this is important to do because there's not like the stimulus package isn't just unemployment insurance, which we definitely need, but it's also money for testing and vaccines. Yeah, definitely. So I guess what is your take as someone who covers this space all the time? Will a relief package that's that big from Biden, will it boost or ruin the economy? 
I mean, like nobody can predict the future. Right. Um, yeah. But if we're balancing risks here, it feels hard to say, just given the past year, like we have not overshot this. Like, let's just try overshooting it one time, in my mind at least. And the Fed does have tools to combat inflation if they need to. And that's what a lot of economists will say. I mean, most people, like Larry Summers is not in line with, I think, the general thinking right now. Well, and that's what I was wondering, because it kind of is annoying to me. It's like what we often see in politics is like this infighting, but we're seeing it amongst, uh, you know, economists. Like if they can agree on this and they're supposed to be kind of giving the blueprint on what, you know, we should be doing, is there really any end, or end at sight, you know, near at sight, or, you know, for this? Well, I think that it's important to remember that there is agreement within Biden's team. And that's what matters Mm. here. Nobody's, I mean, at least as far as we know, their messaging has been very clear. We need to go big. Interest rates are low. We have some space to deficit spend. We really want to respond here. At least so far, we're not hearing disagreement from them. And that's sort of what matters. Right. And that was Emily Stewart, business and politics reporter for Vox. Thanks so much. Yeah. Now, coming up on the show, the impeachment is happening tomorrow, where Democrats and Republicans agree on Trump. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Trump is set to stand trial in the Senate on charges that he instigated the deadly January 6th Capitol riot. And now his lawyers are saying that Democrats tried to, quote, silence a political opponent in a minority party through impeachment. Joining us again is Natalie Jennings, an editor of The Fix at The Washington Post. Thanks for being here. Good to be back with you. Well, I mean, this is going to be a busy week for you. You know, I think we had a, a, it. It's been kind of chill a bit. No drama, it seems, at least the type of drama we have been used to. But what is the clear strategy for House managers prosecuting this case? What should we expect to hear? So they are going to prosecute the case, um, kind of trying to remind these senators about what they witnessed. Remember, the, the victims here, the witnesses here are also the jury here. And um, it seemed like the further we get away from the actual events of January 6th, uh, Republicans who seemed really concerned have somewhat dropped off of that. Uh, So I think there's going to be a big push to remind them of just how deadly a situation they were in and reinforce what they see as Trump's role in that and really lay out the things that he said both on January 6th, but also in the weeks and months leading up to that, you know, I think a big part of their case is going to be focusing on what he said prior to January 6th to invite these people to D.C. in the first place. Well, you know, Trump's lawyers are, of course, denouncing this, calling it political theater. And I think the real big thing that I see that they might have potential of like kind of winning this thing is that it's not constitutional, right? They're saying it's not constitutional to convict a president after he's done with this term. Is that something that actually looks good for them? Like they could get away with this in a way. Um, I don't know that it looks good or bad for them, but it is giving Republicans a way to sidestep this and to say, um, you know, we couldn't possibly convict President Trump because this this trial is not constitutional in the first place. And um, they're going to rehash that argument tomorrow. Tomorrow is the first day for this trial. That's going to be the first thing that comes up is rehashing this argument about the constitutionality of whether this can be um, held after Trump is out of office. Most legal scholars, not all, say, yes, of course, this can happen because uh, that, you know, not being able to have this would mean that there's no consequence for anything a president does in his waning days of office. 
office. This is the constitutional remedy for a president who can't be prosecuted criminally. Um, so you can't really take this away. Um, there, there'll be an argument. Democrats have plenty of votes to um, say we're going to go ahead with this. But I think we will see this tomorrow. And then we're going to see more process arguments when the uh, Trump's defense really ramps up. Um, they're still going to rest their case on process, not actually what Trump has done. That's fascinating to me. Again, we're hearing from Nally Jennings, editor of The Fix for The Washington Post. So with that said, like, how could this play out? There's obviously the two options, right? Is there another one? Like, does he just go free and there's no accountability here, even if they don't end up voting on impeachment? I think it's very, very unlikely that they won't at least vote on it at this point. Um, I think it's also very, very unlikely that he will be convicted. 17 Republicans uh, is what it would take to get to two thirds of the Senate. And that's how many votes they need, 67 votes, uh, to convict Trump. So the odds of that are very, very long. You could see a few, you could see even a few more who aren't expected, but to get a whole other 12, um, other than the five kind of obvious swing votes, I think that's a really um, long stretch. And then, you know, if they don't do that, there are no actual consequences. Um, Trump cannot be from holding office again if he's not convicted in the first place. But Republicans are kind of divided right now, right? We are seeing this party being torn into two. So is it really not as possible for them to get the votes? It seems like there is kind of a, a small, slim chance. There is, yeah, there's not zero chance. Um, I think that a lot of them, the more time that has gone by, they have calculated that their political interests do not lie with convicting President Trump. Um, you know, President Trump still, whatever their personal feelings are, President Trump is still very, very popular with the Republican base. Um, I, I can't remember the latest numbers. Um, 70%, give or take, in the Republican base, who are really who these people are answerable to for their political future, uh, really do support President Trump. So a lot of them, if they want to have a future, don't feel like they have an option, whether or not they think this is the way the Republican Party should be going. Um, and that is certainly an issue that is going to be, you know, not going to be resolved with this impeachment trial vote. And if, if Trump isn't going to be present, how does that work to get a sense of what actually happened and why he did what he did? Um, well, there's plenty, you know, there's public video of what he said, but there's also things like um, social media posts of people saying, I'm here because Trump said to be here. There's also a lot of these people have been charged over 100, um, upwards of like 150, 170 people have been charged. And a few of them, at least like a half dozen or so have said, have um, named Trump in Insight, you know, their decision to come, including that QAnon shaman, the guy with the horns. Oh, yeah, we remember um, him. In his court filing, he said, you know, Trump said to be here. Um, and he said he's willing to testify about that. Uh, so, you know, there's bringing out things like that, examining people's motivations for why they were there um, and examining, you know, just how severe things could have been. I think there's ways to look at how much worse things could have been that we'll also see these Democrats trying to display. Well, that was Natalie Jennings, editor of The Fix at The Washington Post. Now coming up on the show, conservatives are calling Jen Psaki's Lady G tweet homophobic. But is it really? We're going to be discussing that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Press Secretary Jen Psaki, you know, she's been 
having a good time. A lot of people support her, but she came under fire last week from conservatives, not surprising, for a tweet that many straight people find homophobic. The straight people, the conservatives standing up for the gays? What? Are we in the upside down here? So this is what went down. Before working as press secretary for the Biden administration, Saki was a contributor for CNN. And while working there, she made a tweet about Senator Lindsey Graham, where she referred to him as Lady G, which is a popular nickname for the Republican used by many DC insiders. Uh, I didn't even know what that really meant. I said, Lady G, is it Lady Gaga? Is it Lady... We've literally uh, talked about that whole scandal on the show. It was based off of rumors that a sex worker put out on Twitter saying that uh, Lindsey Graham hires sex workers and they go to these like hotels, they do what they do. But Lady Graham had some issues on his backside that, you know, he should probably get looked at. Um, by a doctor, and it was just a whole, whole thing, oh. right? And so um, the whole nickname, it, whether it's like Democrats or Republicans who don't like him, they call him Lady G. Now, the what? question is, was mm -hmm. this homophobic for her to say it? Because a lot of times the conversation surrounding those rumors that came out was a lot of homophobia. To me, I don't care about this man. He doesn't care about queer folks. He doesn't care about anyone that is not Donald Trump. He is stuck up Donald Trump's behind and still to this day is riding that wave. So the fact that Republicans or any of the, the straight people, or conservative straight people that are bothered by this can't tell the difference between homophobia or they and know like homo real homophobia. Yeah, it's like they know homophobia in this sense, but don't know it anytime else. Screw <laughs> them. Like screw them. They're just looking for something to say. You know, and it's actually protecting people's rights through policy. Like, like, this is what homophobia means to them. So this is the tweet. Only in 2020 does Lady G get to push a bunch of debunked conspiracy theories while questioning Sally Q. Yates, a.k.a. an American hero. Uh, yeah. So do I think this is ridiculous yet? Yeah. Do I think somewhat like, she, you know, she was trolling them, but also you're kind of trolling us and misusing the idea of what homophobia actually is. And so... I don't I don't think that she's homophobic by no. doing that. Was it, though? Could she have been a bit more uh, gracious or no. I guess less insulting? It's a bit of an insult to use so, that if that's a nickname. But. So I, for me, I don't care. I think it's oftentimes we see Republicans giving nicknames are saying awful things about Democrats all the time. And yes, this was a little funny little like, you know, jab, yeah. right? Yeah. But it's not in, in the sense of the bigger scale, it is not that serious. And Republicans are trying to do whatever they can to latch on to whatever they can to make it into a bigger story than it needs to yeah. be. Yeah. And let's let's be clear. We don't feel bad for Lindsey Graham because of this. No, and as the advocate said, uh, few in the queer community will defend a senator with such little integrity and respect for democracy that he tried to manipulate election results to please a disgraced president rightfully defeated at the polls. And he's still homophobic, much more homophobic than his tweet. Anywho, coming up next, the crazy things we learned about pop star Britney Spears from her documentary over the weekend. More details on that on What's Trending this hour next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, as we continue to celebrate Black History Month, we're going to reflect on National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day that happened over the weekend and how racial justice is the key to ending this disease. Plus, we have someone joining us who has an organization that deprograms extremists. Yeah. I mean, in intriguing enough, stay tuned for that combo. It kind of sounds like conversion therapy for racists and white supremacists, which basically... 
I mean, it is needed. Unfortunately, he is uh, very busy right now. And I think it actually works because con conversion, that was a joke, conversion therapy. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Anyway. Well, let's get into some what's trending this hour. President Biden said the exodus of millions of women from the labor force and the closing of schools, along with the mental health issues for children that could arise from all of that during this whole pandemic, is basically a national emergency. CBS Evening News anchor and managing editor Nora O'Donnell spoke to Mr. Biden in the first network news interview he has given since his inauguration. Million American children have not been in the classroom for nearly a year. There's a mental health crisis happening. There really is. Women are dropping out of the workforce. Is this a national emergency? It is a national emergency. It generally is a national emergency. Yeah, and that was it. He just said, yeah, it's a national emergency. That was a soundbite that made headlines. Now, the president said he and his staff realized the Trump administration's handling of the pandemic was, quote, even more dire than we thought once they entered the White House as well. And Republican Representative Ron Wright of Texas has died, saying uh, this comes from his team, that he had been admitted to the hospital after contracting COVID-19. Wright is the first sitting member of Congress to die after contracting COVID. In December, Congressman-elect Luke Letlow died after being diagnosed with the disease as well. And Wright's congressional office announced that he had tested positive for COVID-19 on January 21st, with the congressman saying at the time in a statement, I'm experiencing minor symptoms, but overall, I feel okay and will continue working for the people of the 6th District from home this week. And finally, uh, Elon Musk. Wow, he... Can't help but make headlines every single day. Uh, his car firm, Tesla, has bought $1.5 billion of Bitcoin, causing the value of the cryptocurrency to jump 14 times what it's even worth. I feel like it's probably bigger than that. Maybe did I not 14 times? <laughs> oh my God, 14%. Okay, I was like, right. I thought maybe I was missing a zero. No, that's right. Tesla said it was trying to maximize returns on cash that is not being used in day-to-day -day running of the company. So let's just put it there and make some money, basically. And that comes days after Musk added Bitcoin to his Twitter profile page, which drove up the price. He removed it days later, but has continued to uh, talk about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, including Dogecoin, which jumped 50% after his endorsement. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so I know I cannot be the only one who just watched Framing Britney Spears, the new documentary. I didn't. Yeah, but I saw it trending. Girl, it's not looking good for Justin Timberlake. It is time for your tea report those pop culture stories that are trending right now. So, Justin Timberlake is being taken to task by Britney Spears fans following the release of a new documentary. If you don't know about this new doc, Framing Britney Spears is a New York Times documentary detailing Spears' life in the spotlight, including mental health struggles and a conservative ship helmed by her father, Jamie Spears. Now, one part of this, I mean, extremely fascinating documentary focuses on Spears' youthful romance with an NSYNC star in the early 2000s and the math, which included um, the aftermath, which included allegations that Spears cheated on Timberlake. I mean, the way the it really shows the way that the media uh, just asked Britney Spears gross questions about her sexuality, her, her physical body. I mean, it just... The media was so intrusive and just disgusting. It really puts that spotlight. And of course, mm. um, 
fans immediately took to Twitter to call out Timberlake after the doc because it also shows and you hear clips of Justin Timberlake being a pure misogynist. Like oh, it really? is bad. Like it's not good. It just it just really reflects on how misogyny really played in the shaping of what we and how we viewed Britney Spears. And I thought it was incredible. I'm telling you, it's a must watch. That is your T report. Um, but I also have some more in the T report because we have your chance to win your way into an exclusive pay-per-view concert special with Max and his Color Vision Deluxe Experience. It's happening on Saturday, February 27th. And all you got to do is head over to Weird Channel Q right now um, to enter for your chance to win a pair of passes plus a VIP meet and greet with Max. So head over to WeirdChannelQ.com and that is your T report. Now, coming up on the show, after the Capitol riots, families are turning to groups that deprogram extremists. What does that mean? Well, we'll tell you next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. As families have come forward to out their loved ones involved with the Capitol riots, others are turning to groups to deprogram and pull people back from extremism. We found this so interesting. We had to cover it here on the show. And joining us right now is Sammy Rangel, who's the co-founder and executive director of one of these organizations, Life After Hate. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. So what is Life After Hate? What do you all do? Well, I guess you just put it really simple is that we're helping men and men and women leave the violent far right. Um, And we do that in a way that can get them back into society, uh, leading compassionate and and honestly, violent free lifestyles beyond that. So it's it's a it's a a hard process that we go through with people because it can take time. Um, And even if somebody wants to do it, knowing how to do it isn't necessarily something that we're born with you know imagine the five pounds we've been trying to lose for the last two or three years much less having somebody trying to change a whole global narrative that they have about life themselves and others yeah and i think of the time we're living in right peak cancel culture and for folks like the ones going through this program it seems like it would be difficult for them Um, to even get a second chance. So how are they navigating a space where they've made these mistakes? They were once considered to be just, you know, all of these certain level of things. How do they move forward truly? Well, you know, as a former myself, I would say there's a couple of things that we have to do that maybe others don't. And I think one is we have to make amends with the communities that we have victimized. And that's a big part of the messaging that we send. Like, you know, it's not good enough to just stop but you've, if you've contributed to harm, you know, whether it's communities or individuals or groups, like, do you feel a sense of obligation to go back in there and do something about it in any way that you can, directly or indirectly? I think the other part is accountability. Just because you've changed and are seeking forgiveness doesn't mean you're not responsible for what you've done. And so in some way, shape or form, um, are you willing to face accountability for the things that you've done? And I think that those two things go into a certain kind of dialogue because you can't have reconciliation. You can't have repair without dialogue. And so if you've noticed in the cancel culture, how many CEOs have been outed about having white supremacy ties and not disclose them at ever at, at any point in their life, right? The, the, the community's response to that is really well, then you were hiding it. You know, you had something to hide. So how how pure and honest is your intention at being a different person if you haven't faced us? And I think everyone expects us to 
to do at least that as a starting point for the change process. When I think about doing this work, yeah, it seems extremely challenging. There's this feeling like this is born or you're not born with this, but it, it's, it comes with family uh, layers, generations, right? Uh, for people who are guiding people out of this, were you one of those people who were them? Like, do you, do you go to them and help them because that was you? Like, what's your background to give you expertise in this? Well, for, first, first of all, there are a lot of people who would position themselves as experts because they've been there and done that. But I don't necessarily agree with that. I think you can that can be a double-edged sword. It, some people might use that as a way to identify immediately, you know, with someone that, okay, you have a similar past. But I do think you need to have skills and certain development beyond that to be to be competent, right? And to be of service to your community, right? So I, while a lot of us, like myself, have, have been there and done that, uh, with hatred and violence and racism and all of that stuff. We've also gone the extra mile to make sure that we bring a set of skills and insight and, and um, mentoring to the space to make sure that one, we're transparent with the world around us, we're accountable to the world around us, but we're also competent to be in the space. So I do think it takes more than a shared history. We also have had to spend some time working on ourselves professionally and personally in order to be one, uh, I think, at the least amount of risk for causing harm in this space, like, you know, because you're working with vulnerable people who, who, if we were not to know what we were doing, could cause more harm. This is still a new emerging area where people are leveraging their resources towards. Because it's new, there's not a lot of precedent set. So we have to take our time and move slowly to ensure that we're trying out the best strategies to get to make some headway uh, with people from this kind of lifestyle. But I, I think, one, you're, this idea of making amends and holding yourself accountable also comes with the, the, the result of people not forgiving you, of communities not forgiving you, especially because of the nuance, like, let's say, black, the black and brown community, of the things mm -hmm. that they go through on a daily basis. You know, if they're, if they're not getting the response that they're, they're looking for and, and looking for amends, does that affect them, you know, negatively? Does that feel like, oh, well... I'm just to give this up because I'm not getting the response or the, the forgiveness that I thought I wanted. We know that it does, right? Because when you look at reentry programs, when you have communities that reject someone coming back to your community, it does lead to increased recidivism rates, right? So we know, we do know that if we as a whole remain completely closed to the idea that people can change and should be allowed to change, we really set ourselves up for failure and for more violence, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the things that Life After Hate does is provide that community, right? Because we are one of those safe havens where you can come as ugly as you have done, as ugly as you have been, and have a safe place to land so that we can start working on your change process. So creating some sort of safe haven for these men and women to at least start their process is in everybody's best interest that they have at least one place to go for that. Again, you're hearing from Sammy Rangel, co-founder, executive director from Life After Hate. We're going to continue this conversation after this, find out how you get someone into these types of organizations and what do they do inside. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We are talking to Sammy Rangel, co-founder, executive director of Life After Hate, these organizations that deprogram extremists. Wow. So many questions come up here first. How do you get a person in your life into this? Like, is it like an intervention? 
Well, it's not it's not necessarily what we're getting anyone to do. I think we create an opportunity for uh, for people who are at least even slightly open to the idea that change is necessary, right? And creating a safe place for that in which in which that can happen, right? So while you can't guarantee that somebody can can actually make the change, you have to you do have to provide an atmosphere in which that can happen, and so. We spend a lot of time paying attention to our own narratives. We try to remain agnostic in the way we approach this space rather than what I think most people would be expecting, which is some sort of judgment or categorization or limited beliefs about someone. So we try to remain agnostic. We try to remain open. We do spend a lot of time listening. And I think listening has has a significant impact because when you live in such a polarized version of the world right now, Mm -hmm. no Mm -hmm. one spends any time listening. And the times you do spend listening, it's only t- it's to none of the facts and only half of the opinions, right? And so when we listen, we tend to take it all on and take it all in, which is a very foreign act of kindness for a lot of people. You might even find that true in your own lives where people are genuinely just listening for the sake of, of trying to relate to you as a human being, although we may not relate to what is motivating your thoughts, but we relate to you as a person who is kind of struggling in life and we want to know what it is that you struggle with so we can put a plan together. Yeah, talking about that divisive time, I mean, QAnon, right? This is something that is controlling the narrative is a, a majority besides, you know, former President Donald Trump, besides, you know, him started this insurrection at the Capitol, right? How do you combat that at this point? And how do people like those folks who are insurrectionists even realize like, oh, maybe this isn't true. I need help. Well, I think it starts with trying to understand where did this come from? How did this happen? You know, while while we can talk about whatever role Trump played in, there are a lot of people who played supporting roles in that who also contribute to this dynamic, right? We have to spend time trying to understand who is being motivated by the messaging that influenced them to adopt these beliefs. And that means, again, taking time to listen to people to understand what is behind that, right? And so I think what started four or five years ago was a a really strategic move on that far right perspective around uh, positioning themselves as the only trusted source of information, meaning that anytime people like me or you try to use reason, that they were conditioned to believe that we couldn't be trusted if we fit any of those roles. Now that we understand that, we can start to try to tailor our messaging not to trigger those beliefs behind the deep state, behind the conspiracies. Once you understand that, and that's, I think, one of the, since we've been doing this since 2011, we've had hundreds, if not thousands of conversations with these men and women, which have all informed life after hate on what kind of messaging is actually making a difference here. And, and a part of that messaging, again, where, when I say agnostic, that's by design. Like we understood, like that was the only way. Because if we come in and sound like we have a position, mm-hmm. we've already started to work against ourselves. So, what, are no you matter. acting like you're undercover and like you're still one no. of the bad? Like, how, like that's why I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm missing the disconnect. Because if you're, if you know that that's what triggers them, then how do you get on their level of them understanding that? Oh, it's a safe space. Because I'm thinking birds of a feather flock together, and so if they see a little bit of themselves inside of you, it's like, oh, then you'll be able to kind of get them over to the right side. Well, Let's talk about what I've learned in, about QAnon in the last few days, right? They have no leader right now. Their leader is voiceless. So that means they are they are vulnerable. There is no there is no direct messaging governing their thoughts right now like it has been for the last four or five years. 
And if you know someone is vulnerable and you position yourself next to them, that creates the opportunity for outreach. These far right groups recognize that QAnon is kind of voiceless and leaderless right now isn't exploiting that. And so understanding where, where the exploitation of these vulnerable populations comes from allows us to put ourselves right there in a way that can resonate with them and get them. And when they're vulnerable and by vulnerable, I don't mean fragile. They're, they're at a tipping point where something bad could really happen, right? Maybe we see a, a mass murder, a mass shooting. That's what I'm kind of thinking about when I talk about vulnerabilities. But they're also vulnerable because they're not quite sure what their next step should be. And if we've learned anything from the last four or five years of campaign strategy is that when people are vulnerable, they're influenceable. And so when you create your narratives and your campaigns to try to reach out to these men and women, you can use that kind of information to position yourself. We are a safe place for them to land. But if we're not in the same space that they are, we really can't do much for them to reach out to them. Again, we're talking to Sam Urangel, co-founder, executive director of Live After Hate. Uh, but how do people find you just through Facebook ads? Or are they reaching out to you as the person or is it their family? That's what I, I never got yes. the real the answer about the intervention. I can tell you right now, it this space is a little unlike your traditional intervention. After Charlottesville, more than half of our client was made up of family and friends. Before Charlottesville, 98% of our clients were self-referrals, people looking for help for themselves. Once the word got out that Life After Hate was a resource, families and their, and their significant others started flocking to us to reach out for help. And an interesting point of that data is that the majority of people reaching out on behalf of someone else are women. So I really want to know why it's specifically men, and specifically white men and those who are in the military that are so uh, flocking to this type of mentality and way of living. So let's get into that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We're back with Sammy Rangel, co-founder, executive director of Life After Hate, one of these organizations. They're de-radicalizing, deprogramming extremists, which we just think this has been such a fascinating conversation. Now, a lot of these programs in reading about this are tailored to former military and law enforcement personnel, a group well represented at the Capitol riot, specifically white men. Why do you think that is? Why do you think this specific group of people has become such an issue and who find themselves leaning towards extremist right groups and these types of conspiracy theories and movements? Well, there's a long historical context with this country and white supremacy, right? So I think in, uh, an oversimplistic answer is anytime you're, you're trying to make things fair that have typically tipped in favor of one or the other, you will get significant resistance. I also think in this day and age, um, what, what maybe our last administration really capitalized on was this sentiment of nationalism. You mentioned the military. Well, think about what happened after 9-11. The, the police became um, kind of like above reproach and militarized, right? A lot of these members from these far-right groups see joining the military as a counterbalance, as a counterweight to anti-racist society by, by tipping the scales of power, military power, in their favor. And a lot of them use it as a tool to go learn skills that they can bring back to these groups. Um, and they can also use those skills to kind of recruit from within. Uh, and we know that that has been happening. Right. But there's also, I think, the infiltration of law enforcement as well as the military has kind of 
has it's kind of played out now, right? We've seen what happened with George Floyd before and after, where we've like there's a sentiment that we we are above reproach, we're above accountability, we're above the law, and it's anti-American to see us as anything other. There's a certain appeal for certain people who subscribe to that kind of ideology. Yeah, so 74 million people voted for Donald Trump. And I would think with the line of the business that you have, you're hopefully wanting at the end of the day for this to like not have to be an issue. That one day white supremacy, you know, there won't be white supremacists that need to be deprogrammed, all these things. But do you think this is actually here to stay? Like how long does it really take for this moment to like have the end? Life after hate is the first of its kind. We've been around for 10 years. We're talking about taking on a 400-year-old battle, not to mention with global reach, right, and, and global influence. We are just, we are pioneering an effort, and we are just at the very beginning stages of this. We're going to be informing programs long after, you know, I die and move on from this world. Hopefully what we've built here will help inform other places and other people, other communities with what can be done. But until then, um, yeah, this is here to stay. We can lose the battle, but we need to maintain balance. Okay. Well, uh, Sammy Rangel, executive director, co-founder of Life After Hate. Thank you so much for being with us. This has been really interesting. I mean, interesting enough for it to be a full hour. I mean, (laughs) I still have so many questions, though. Uh, We'll do a two-parter. Yeah, for more, you can go to lifeafterhate.org. Thanks again. Now, coming up next, another member of the LGBTQ community has joined Pete Buttigieg's transportation department. Who is it? Well, we'll be telling you next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Now coming up on the show, what we come to all learn from Black HIV Awareness Day and what to expect from Trump's impeachment trial starting tomorrow. We've got you covered right here on the show. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Chuck Schumer have announced a special reimbursement fund for COVID funerals. Families who could not afford proper funerals for their loved ones who died from the coronavirus will be eligible for up to $7,000 in reimbursement. When you suddenly lose a loved one, you're talking about an expense of four, five, seven, ten thousand dollars And then during COVID, with overrun uh, funeral facilities, etc., families also are, being, are having to deal with having to pay for the storage of the bodies of their own loved ones. This is wrong. And so I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to, um, to have such strong and powerful community leaders here to alert us to this as soon as everything started to hit. Now, last month, Arizona State Representative Orlando Teller was one of only six out members of his state's legislature. Now he's joining Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg to become the nation's Deputy Assistant Secretary of Tribal Affairs. He is the second member of the Navajo Nation to be appointed to the new Biden administration, joining Walea Johns, who is tabbed to head the Office of Indian Energy. What a great early Yaz queen as well. He announced this on Facebook. I'm honored and excited to work for the Biden administration and the U.S. Uh, DOT Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Representation matters. And that is so true. And what a cool appointment. Now, uh, Daniel Day Kim and Daniel Wu, uh, those two actors, 
are taking a stand against rising cases of hate crimes towards the Asian community. The actors are offering a $25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the suspect who assaulted an elderly Asian man in Oakland, California on January 31st. The 91-year-old was one of three assaults targeting Asian seniors in the Chinatown district. This is just really sad and horrible. Uh, Daniel Day Kim captioned a video of the assault in an Instagram post on Friday saying the number of hate crimes against Asian Americans continue to skyrocket despite our repeated pleas for help. The crimes are too often ignored and even excused. Remember hashtag Vincent Chin. He added enough is enough. We are offering uh, the money for a reward for information leading to this arrest. We must do more to help the literally thousands of Americans who have suffered at the hands of this absolutely senseless violence. Please help us bring this criminal to justice. Yeah, I saw this and I I saw that they were, you know, really putting the spotlight and just taking a stand. And I, I love, love, love this. Yeah, actually, I would love to have Daniel Dick him on. He was involved in a project I did over the weekend. And so maybe he'll join us on the show to talk more about this. I mean, I hope. Let's do it. Yeah, let's try. Okay, that was what's training this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? All right, real quick. I got a special shout out to all my Disney gays. Because if you live in California, Los Angeles, uh, Disney California Adventure Park plans to open mid-March for for an all-new limited time outdoor food and beverage ticketed experience, allowing nearly a thousand Disney cast members to return to work. So, I mean, I don't know what this means for the pandemic, (laughs) but the Disney gays will be happy. Okay, so let's get into my actual tea report because everyone is talking about... Because everyone is talking about SNL again. And this mm-hmm. time it's because of Dan Levy's mom. It's time for your tea report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So Dan Levy's mom is the cutest because uh, she was so proud of his first ever gig hosting Saturday Night Live that she shared this moment on Twitter uh, with his childhood bullies. Uh, she tweeted this. This owes out to the bully punks at Camp WTF who <laughs> made uh, life miserable for a certain cabin mate back in the summer of 96 just because he was different. Aww. Well, after all these years, I have just seven words to say to you. Live from New York, it's Saturday night. Uh, I, I love that. It, it's just the cutest thing. It really is. I mean, he's come a long way. You know, he was one of the hosts of uh, MTV Canada. I actually got auditioned for it like way back. Really? He got that gig and he was one of the hosts before. He, I mean, he obviously he was obviously a comedian and actor and then he ended up doing this. But that makes sense because, you know, he also throwback. He also hosted the after show for The Hills when it was. Yeah, that's really why. Good. Because it was yeah. coming from MTV, MTV Canada. Yeah. Is that crazy? That's yeah. that's really cool. Um, but if he, of course, as we wrap this up, he shared um, the caption that his mom like posted he shared it with moms with the red heart so Aww. i just thought that was really really cute and of course before we go we got to tell you about your chance to uh, win your way into an exclusive pay-per-view concert special with max and his color vision deluxe experience on saturday february 27th 8 p.m easter 5 p.m pacific you can either if you don't win this uh you can go buy tickets at uh www.livexlive.com slash max the contest ends midnight february 21st head over to weirdchannelq.com for your chance to win a pair of passes plus a meet and greet situation so go over there that's your team report now coming up on the show what we could all learn from this year's national black hiv aids awareness day that's next 
Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day is held each year on February 7th, which was yesterday, to increase awareness of efforts to mitigate the burden of HIV in Black communities. And this year's theme was We're In This Together. Joining us right now is Max Boykin, Policy and Organizing Manager at the Black AIDS Institute. Thanks for being here. Thank you all so very much for having me. So why is a specific day like National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day so important to including right now? So I think it's really important that the National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day is also situated in Black History Month and understanding how in which it has disproportionately impacted our communities, not just in the United States, but in the world, but also understanding and connecting it to Black history, uh, understanding how in which uh, this this disease uh, has disproportionately impacted Black people, but Black people have always also been part of the advocacy. I work at the Black AIDS Institute, which was founded by Phil Wilson, um, but there was many other advocates before him, uh, Mario Cooper, uh, Kathy Cohen, and, and the list goes on and on of folks, of, of Black advocates who also were, were standing up and fighting when we talk about ACT UP and other historical queer-led movements. There was so much of it that was led by, by Black advocates across the country who are still leaders in different ways and led to a lot of the different advocacy that we continue to see now. Um, that Because they, what advocates said then and continue to say now is that nothing can be done without us and that you have to include the community that is most impacted in the actual work that is being done. And it's also important for us to, as we are having this awareness on Black people to also put awareness on things that are disproportionately impacting us and understanding that HIV is not something that is a behavioral thing, is the reason why it impacts Black people the most. It is a uh, a structural social determinants of health thing that is the reason why black people are disproportionately impacted by this along with other diseases. Doing research on this and the Washington Post says if current trends hold one in two black American men who have sex with men including self-identified gay and bisexual men will become HIV positive in their lifetimes. That is one a super I mean that triggered me in a way right because that I fall into that group of people is that is that based on a a lack of resource and educational like thing? like so how should we be looking at something like that especially as people who are a part of those communities who could be affected so i look at it uh as definitely dealing with the structural barriers now there are different things that definitely folks can do um in order to make sure that they can make sure that they do not become a person living with hiv and also if when they become a person living with hiv that they have the access to the things that they can live long healthy lives one thing that we want to make sure people understand is there are many people living with HIV today that are living uh, 60 plus, 70 plus, 80 plus years old and have uh, good functioning people in our society, uh, but they just happen to be a person living with HIV. And that's because they were had access to medication at a, at a, at a good period of their life uh, in the time where they actually could get it, the necessary needs that they needed. While there are also systems a lot of our folks and specifically in the black community that don't get access to that. And those are not because of behavioral problems, but again, systemic issues, um, lack of access to care, stigma being, a, uh, as one of our black treatment advocates networks, uh, members said in Florida a couple years ago, stigma is one of the number one killers. And that means stigma within our community, stigma from the system and not allowing those that have been disproportionately impacted, uh, specifically uh, black same gender loving men along with uh, black trans women and also black women as a whole are disproportionately impacted by HIV in this country. And we have to understand we need to make sure that it's not again a, a particular issue. It is a systemic problem 
Um, and when I say that, I meant uh, black, both black trans and black cisgender women are disproportionately impacted by HIV. Uh, thank you. Again, you're hearing from Max Boykin, policy and organizing manager at the Black AIDS Institute. Well, yeah, let's talk about this, why racial, racial justice is such a core part of this and how we approach eliminating HIV and AIDS from the Black community. Yeah, when we at the Black AIDS Institute understand that we cannot end HIV without actually tackling the racial justice issues within this country. We know that there are things that are definitely tied within it. Um, and we've seen it actually been hyper-focalized even with the, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic that has disproportionately also impacted black and brown communities. And we see that this is not something that folks are born not to have the access to uh, or not born not knowing how to deal with these different things. It's systemically over time, making sure that people don't have access to care, mm -hmm. uh, which disproportionately make black people are the ones that are outside of care. Uh, and, and then also understanding the med the history of medical mistrust. I, my my people come from the state of Alabama. Uh, I was uh, born and raised in Georgia. Uh, we understand what the Tuskegee uh, syphilis experiment did. And then if you also understand the end of the Tuskegee uh, syphilis experiment, uh, which ends in the late 70s, you have the beginning of what is considered grid, um, the early stages of HIV of what we understood in the United States, uh, starts to creep up actually in the late 60s, 70s, but fully gets understood or starts to get understood in the 80s. And again, adds a very stigmatizing, um, these are the certain communities that are disproportionately impacted by it. But those are the things that we have to, to think about a little bit more and understanding that we have to deal with the racism uh, of our medical uh the medical institution for us to actually end HIV in this country. Well, thank you for being here and for all the work you're doing. We really appreciate it. That was Max Boykin, Policy and Organizing Manager at the Black AIDS Institute. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Wrapping up the show as we always do with my favorite, Yes Queen of the Day. Yes Queen. I love this because we all need some positivity at all times in our life. There's a lot of messed up stuff happening. Uh, and that's why I'm so excited to talk about this today. Amanda Gorman is back. I mean, she is killing it. Just before Super Bowl, the kickoff last night, the presidential inaugural poet delivered another original poem honoring three frontline workers who have served during the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, in her moving poem, Chorus of the Captains, the 22-year-old celebrated educator, Tremaine Davis, a nurse manager, Susie Dorner, and veteran, James Martin, uh, who last week were also announced by NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell as this year's honorary captains for their dedication and commitment to helping others. Here she is. Let us walk with these warriors, charge on with these champions, and carry forth the call of our captains. We celebrate them by acting with courage and compassion, by doing what is right and just. For while we honor them today, it is they who every day honor us. Now I'm telling you, she's amazing. I get chills every time I hear her. So if you didn't check that out, go to at NFL on Twitter for the full video. You know what? One thing to not damper this vibe, but okay. one thing that <laughs> the NFL really gets on my nerves. The oh, NFL yeah. did a whole like little montage mm -hmm. for like how they're stepping up with the whole yep. like Black Lives Matter <laughs> yes. thing. And I thought it was so tone deaf. Also, President Joe Biden and uh, First Lady Joe Biden, Dr. First Lady Joe Biden. Um, no, wait, what's her name? Not Joe Biden. Jill. Jill Biden. There we go. Um they asked everyone to take a, a moment of silence for the people who've passed from COVID while there okay. was like so many people in the stands. I'm just saying. Yeah. 
very tone deaf moments happening, but that's yeah. just my take. And yes, Queen, the the happy segment of the show. Yeah, always thought provoking to add to the yes, Queen. Uh, but yeah, I'm surprised SNL didn't poke fun at the NFL like in a sketch about well because like, we stand a... for social injustice, and it'd be like. Well, yeah, well, all because the, the Super Bowl was on Sunday and the, the Saturday Night Live is on Saturday. Yeah. So I know, so I'm couldn't. surprised they didn't do anything. Oh, yeah, but, but meaning they could have just, like, done something looking at the irony of oh, everything happening right like, now. Oh, like, yeah, they could have predicted the future. Anyway, yeah. this is me and Ryan shooting it right here on the show. <laughs> this is what we like to do. That does it for our show today. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us. If you missed any of our show, we post everything as a podcast. Just go to the radio.com app and search Let's Go There. Tomorrow on the show, of course, we always bring you what's during this hour. We're bringing you news of the impeachment trial starting tomorrow. Also, uh, Nevada, Nevada, I almost said Nevada. They want to let tech companies start their own governments. I mean, what does that even mean? We're going to get into that. Yeah. Plus, uh, common mental health advice we should actually ignore right now. You know, we love talking about mental health here. Well, we are going there tomorrow, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern, live right here on Channel Q. Now we are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. And stick around for Loveline, where Dr. Chris will be covering predicting divorce. That's next.